episode of Short Box Summary. I'm your host, George, and we got an old, beautiful friend returning to Studio Age. Sean, how's it going? I am doing well, George. How are you, my friend? I am good. You told me not that long ago that you've been reading <laughs> new comics. It was 30 seconds ago that you've been reading new comics, <laughs> that you were excited about uh, coming on this podcast, but that you were getting into more current, more modern shit. So tell me, Sean, what have you been reading yeah. lately? Yeah, so uh, I've been reading a good amount, actually. I, I, And I even, since uh, we last spoke, George, I even went to my very first comic book signing. Ooh. So I am diving headfirst into this hobby. Um, I'll start off with the signing that I went to. I met uh, James Tynion, the fourth, okay. uh, because I have become a huge fan of Something is Killing the Children, to the point where I even have some t-shirts now. Um, so I've been reading <laughs> Something's Killing the Children by James Tiny in the Fourth and Werger Deladera. It's awesome, awesome, awesome. I'm not one to usually kind of lean towards horror, but to me, it skews more towards like a Stranger Things type of horror. And I think the uh, art is really cool. And I know there's a series coming out for it soon. Um, another one I've, I read was Burn by Chip Sadarsky and Jacob Phillips. Mm-hmm. Kind of noir um detective kind of thing very very cool as well uh king of spies by mark miller mateo scalero and um oscar uh gonna butcher this yeldrum um very cool like if if james bond was like a aarp member uh okay (laughs) (laughs) um it's it's pretty funny. It's it's got this really cool flavor to it, and the art style is awesome. Um, crossover by Donny Cates, Jeff Shaw, D. Cuniff, and John J. Hill, and that's kind of a. I know everywhere's kind of got this like metaverse thing going on, but this is about as metaverse metaverse kind of thing as you can get. But uh, yeah, that book is pretty fucking nuts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but it was pretty cool. And then finally, Righteous Thirst for Vengeance, which is Rick Remender. Andre Lima Orajo and Chris O'Halloran. And that is badass. It's like John Wick, but more gruesome, very little dialogues. So it's a greed, mm-hmm. uh, but the art is awesome. And I, I think that would be so cool for somebody to do a motion picture interpretation of because some of the scenes and visuals are just awesome. Damn, dude, you've been busy. A lot of those names are familiar to me from the era of comics that we uh, we talk about a lot on Shortbox Summer. You mentioned Mark Millar, said it was called King of Spies. Yeah, I can't keep up. Mark Millar pu- like publishes so much shit on such like it's such a ridiculous clip that it's really hard to keep up with. Uh, but his stuff is always fun, and it usually just feels kind of like a ninety minute action movie distilled down yeah. into like five or six issues. Uh, that so that that's really cool. I'm glad he's still still pumping out the hits. Um, Rick Remender got really big, uh, sort of towards like the tail end of where I imagine this podcast ending, like in like yeah. 2013, 2012. Like that was when I think I remember reading some Remender stuff like in college too. So like 2010 maybe. Uh, but man, that dude's also just putting out the hits forever. <laughs> it's it's funny because now. That I'm jumping into comics recently, all these guys have kind of very much established themselves as like legends of the industry. Mm-hmm. And I'm jumping in at this point where to you, you're like, oh, I might remember their first issue when that came yeah. out. Kind of thing. 
but uh, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's cool, pretty man. cool. You, you gotta start somewhere and i remember feeling that way very much uh especially like about the book we're gonna talk about um today which we'll get to in just a second um if you're listening that is incredibly cool I don't know how you found this. The internet's a big, weird place, but I'm very happy you found my little corner of it. Uh, tell people you think would like this show, about this show. That's really cool. Write a review on on iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast service you're listening to. That's also super cool. Liking, retweeting is free. That's cool, too. Um, just get the word out there, because the more people who listen, uh, the more cool shit we can do with cool people like Sean. But maybe maybe we'll get like a comic author. Maybe we'll get a comic book editor on here. I don't know. I've been eyeing some some talents, people who did That's cool, cool shit. No, no one's cooler than you, Sean. Don't worry about it. Um, Sean, are you wearing shoes? I am not, actually. You're, right. you're not? All right. Well, I'm going to ask you to put your shoes on so we can take a walk back to February 20th. Yeah, let's just say February, actually. Fe- February 20th, 2006, if the, if that's cool with you. That is perfect. You uh, you a sandals guy in the house? Uh, it depends. Barefoot or slippers, usually. Yeah. Got to yeah. keep the toesies warm. You do. I live in Maine, uh, where toesies are prone to be cold so yeah i got my my l bean slippers usually but sometimes you like wear them so much your feet get a little sweaty and then i, I try to mix it up go a little open open toed with uh some nice adidas slides you know like just keep yeah. keeping it fresh yeah <sighs> all right well your shoes are strapped on my shoes are strapped on i'm wearing these beautiful adidas grand courts that look like stan smith's but aren't stan smith's i think they're a little more comfortable because they weren't built for you know playing tennis with no ankle support so uh, edgy edgy less men may uh yeah i had to throw out my new balances i kept getting made fun of too much by my girlfriend so that one oh in dc new balances are the cool shoes oh really oh yeah it's fucking preposterous (laughs) we'll have you down here (laughs) man born out of time (laughs) man born out of place sean the movies uh i found for february 24th to 26 2006 Weird time to be at the movies. Weird, weird weekend. Uh, number one movie at the box office was Medea's Family Reunion. Oh, I'm a big fan of the Medea series. Is that the first Medea movie? I forgot to look that up. Um, I don't. Maybe I think so actually, because then I think I think Medea goes to jail came after mm-hmm. Medea's Family Reunion. But I mean, they've gone full spectrum with the. Uh, Medea movies now they even have some Halloween spinoffs wow I just I can't believe that like Tyler Perry the brains behind Medea was like the lawyer in Gone Girl and he was just so fucking badass and just eloquent in a way that like he just seemed so perfectly slimy which was you know (laughs) compared to like his character who's just like so I guess like open right in Medea like just like trying to like be like a family person right to my understanding yeah, very, of the Medea movies. It's yeah, it's kind of Eddie Murphy nutty professor-esque, like very over the top, uh, you know, bigger than life kind of personality. Yeah, just the fact that he had that pitch, you know, like being a scumbag lawyer, got he was fucking excellent in Gone Girl. Um he's number, got range. <laughs> number two movie, Eight Below, which I believe was the Cuba Gooding Jr. Oh my dog, yeah, dog sled yeah. movie. Yeah. That's hilarious. Number three, The Pink Panther, starring Steve Martin and Beyonce. Yeah. Number four was Date Movie, which was like a, a hodgepodge. Oh, yeah, I know yeah. that one. 
Jesus Christ. They were really like following in the footsteps of like scary movie, which I think is actually a good movie. And then everything after like date movie, epic movie. I think can't do it. I think me like 13 of my closest friends tried to sneak into that movie uh, when it came out. So fond memories. That feels right. That feels. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be getting into trouble. <laughs> Not too much trouble. Just good, fun trouble. Uh, number five, Curious George, the animated movie, which I believe you're a big music head. We're about to get to Billboard Hot 100. This yeah. is like uh, Jack Johnson. Yeah, he did the whole soundtrack. And I, my mother for Valentine's Day got me that album. And oh. uh, it, it was a very good one. I remember I was super into a channel called Fuse at this time, which was basically yep. like uh, pop punk MTV. And then mm-hmm. they started the MTV thing. We're like, well, we're not making enough money. Like, let's just run reality shows. And they just fell down the same exact rabbit hole that MTV did. But uh, I remember seeing, like, <laughs> I feel like a My Chemical Romance video into Jack Johnson singing Upside Down with just like a cartoon monkey just horsing about. Weird shit. Weird, weird tonal change. That'll throw someone on sure. Another music video I remember seeing a lot this time was the number one song for the week. And that was Check On It by Beyonce featuring Slim Thug. Such a classic. That song, the beat, everything. Oh, so good. Zip it, pop it, work it, stop it, check on me tonight. God, that song is fucking incredible. That song is so good. Uh, Song number two is You're Beautiful by James Blunt. Any thoughts? Any thoughts on this blue-eyed wonder from England? Was it my life is brilliant? My life is pure. I saw saw an an angel. angel. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Just smiled at me on the subway. She was with another man, but I won't lose sleep at night. I got a plan. He had one explicit lyric in that. I think that would get cut out on radio, and I'm trying to remember what it was because I remember it was. It was almost as if he was trying to like stick it to the label and just throw in an explicit. Yeah, I remember one part being oddly filthy, like listening to it on CD as opposed to as opposed to like the radio it cut. Had nothing to do with the rest of the song, but you know, stick no, it in when you can. Fucking that music video was weird too. It was like him on like a glacier or something, and he was just like slowly <laughs> like undressing. Yeah, slowly undressing throughout the video, staring directly into the camera, and then at the end, just like jumping off into the ocean. I was like, oh, I guess we'll never see him again. That was when the big VH1 Sunday countdowns were huge. I remember that one always getting number one. Yeah, fuck, there was that. And then uh, uh, Goodbye, My Lover was like his other big hit, which um, that music video, Wild, I Know You Love the OC, Misha Barton's in that music video. Yeah. Yeah, as his love yeah. interest, and that's the song that Michael plays when he falls in love with the waitress from uh, Benihana oh, <laughs> at, the, yes, at the Christmas party, yes, and he's yes, just playing yes. it repeatedly on his computer, but he won't buy it, so he just listens to the thirty-second preview over and over again. Oh god, when he gives her the bike, oh my god, he gives her the bike, and, and then the he like sharpie. Oh. yeah, marks her palm with a sharpie because he's so <laughs> drunk he can't remember which one he's started flirting with. Um, <sighs> what a time! Uh, number three. 
was Grills by Nelly featuring Paul Wall, Ali, and Gip. I don't know this one off the top of my head. I don't remember oh, this song. Let me see your girls. You want to see my what? What? Your girls. What? What? Your uh, girl. The oh, whole... fuck. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I do. <laughs> that, that's all it took. Yeah. Let, 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 let me see your grills. Right. Yeah. And the bottom row is gold. <laughs> my oh, middle so... school dances going crazy to that one. How the fuck are seventh graders supposed to dance to that song? Well, I went to a Catholic school, so it's with the Holy Spirit in between. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Perfect, yeah. perfect, perfect. I just, I don't understand. I think I somehow had more confidence as a seven-year-old because, or sorry, a seventh grader, because the idea of, like, dancing to, like, this or, fuck, last week uh, we did Shake Your Tail Feather on the show. Oh, yeah. Oh. And so yeah. it's just, like, I don't, like, as a 32-year-old now, I don't know how to dance to that song, but, like, somehow... <laughs> uh, Eighth grade George had no problems figuring out ways to, to, to move to that beat. For some reason, uh, young Sean thought that if a rapper had the same first name as himself, that he embodied the same personality. So anything P. Diddy was very near and dear to my heart. Yeah, he's your your spirit, Sean. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Number four was Be Without You by Mary J. Blige. Any thoughts on uh, MJB? I mean, I love Mary J. Blige. Love her very much. Um, I didn't appreciate that song at the time, but as I got older, I have appreciated it much more. I don't think I appreciated Mary J. Blige in general at the time. Like, it just kind of felt like, like, it just, like, always expected it. Like, I'm a huge tennis fan. And mm-hmm. so, like, it was just, for 15 years, it was just always Rafael Nadal roger federer and novak Djokovic, and now like federer's retired nadal's probably about to retire and like Djokovic's probably got like another two years in him but it's one of those things where like oh i just thought it was always going to be like this like i thought we were just going to get a mary j blige song like every six months like i thought we were always going to get a family affairs like i, I thought it was just always going to happen yeah. i mean she was nominated for album of the year this year that's a good point from the grammys yeah. she's timeless uh, number five, I'm in love with a stripper by T Pain featuring Mike Jones. Gun to your head, Sean. Thoughts right now on this song? It speaks for itself. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that this is, uh, I can't think I can't hear the words of the song without thinking of Tom Haverford from Parks and Rec, because I feel like this song is probably like 60 percent of his personality. Right. If I had to if I had to put a number to it. Absolutely. All right. That's where we were musically in 2006. That's where we were cinematically in 2006. Kind of. Yeah. Strange time. It feels like we're between really big things because like as, as good as like check on it is. 
I don't think it quite hit the highs of earlier Beyonce. I don't think it hit the highs of later Beyonce. And I'm not saying this is like mid-tier Beyonce. I'm just saying like just another like a like a solid B plus from her. James Blunt might have peaked with your beautiful, at least in terms of popularity. Not my favorite song. Still goodbye, my lover. That Absolutely. song will, song will always mean the world to me. But uh Sean, that's that's what was happening around the story we're about to talk about today. Are you ready to jump into it? Are you ready to talk about astonishing X-Men in a story called Torn? Yes. And as somebody that's not familiar with that much X-Men beforehand, sometimes I was confused as I was back then when those movies and songs were out. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, this is one thing I really want to talk about. We might even like rush through the summary just to get to like the actual bigger conversation because I fucking loved it rereading this, but also I had so many problems with this book on this reread. And I, uh, do you want to get into that now or do you want to save that for later? Yeah, I mean, sure. We can certainly do that. No, but which one? Oh, um, I mean, I think there was some things near the end that I just didn't understand how certain characters kind of got involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and the... Uh, what's the the shadowy figures? I know we talked about them the last episode. What what were those guys called? The Hellfire Club. Yes, the Hellfire Club. I'm not really sure what happened to them at the end of this. All right, let's let's talk about this part first, and then we'll get into thoughts about the specific story. Um, this was my first X Men series that I started reading religiously, and I'll be honest: at the time, I was so stupidly fucking confused. This is back in a time so early where like I would use Wikipedia without even knowing the name Wikipedia. Like I would, you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't say like, Oh, I'll just check it up on wiki. Like this is before that was like vernacular. It was just me Googling things, trying to get any kind of answer and finding a website that looks somewhat organized and never thinking twice about what the website was. Like that's how like nascent I was in my, my internet sleuthing. And I had to do that so fucking much for this story. This story in particular broke my brain. And I think this is inherently the biggest problem with this series. I think it's a beautiful series. I think it's tough to talk about. It's written by Joss Whedon, who's a piece of shit, a uh, little, little sex pest. I'm sorry to cover it, but it, it is like a really big story for the time. So like, gotta talk about it. But hey, always happy to say that Joss Whedon's uh, the, the, the sex criminal uh, piece of shit. Like, the, no problem saying that. Guy, guy's a bad dude. Yeah, we're not a fan. No, certainly not. Uh, but this story was uh, important to Marvel at the time, so we're gonna jump into it. But like, dude, this story is basically a sequel to Grant Morrison's X-Men. And the more I reread this, especially like currently, like through, uh, through the show with you, the more it's so weird to me that I'm like, Joss Whedon was like a really talented writer. Piece of shit, but like clearly good at, at writing. And it's just so weird to me that like he basically all this stuff is fan fiction. Like I'm not trying to like put anything on airs, but like this story, this entire like he does 25 issues with John Cassidy and like that entire run is kind of fan service to a previous run. Like it's so nostalgic for Grant Morrison's new X-Men book that came out in 2001. And I think that's simultaneously really cool because I love it when new comic books make old comic books matter. I think that's really important. I think that's a great way to respect fans and also a good way to get new fans curious. I think in this instance, it's probably gone a little too far because it is just confusing as shit. And I had to go through 
and like make actual notes about characters in a way that I haven't for any other episode where like I need to like not even for you not even for the listeners but just write down my thoughts to make sure I understood everything that was happening and who the fuck these people were because they come out of nowhere now I know some of it for me is oh I'm newer to comics and some of that is just comic book shit Mm -hmm. um so the this may not be the best series for beginners to you know to the medium for that reason then because sometimes there may be so much comic book shit for the comic book shit i hear you but also with this show i wanted to just plant a flag and just move forward like it's one of those things where like oh well i mean to get the full story like you should really go back and read grant morrison and uh Igor Kardovsky and, and Frank Quietly and, and Mark Sylvester, all these people on New X-Men. Go back to 2001. It's like, well, actually, to really understand that, you should read Apocalypse the 12, which happened right before it kind of set that up. It's like, well, actually, before that, you should read Onslaught to figure out why everyone's in such a shitty mood. And like, it's just you could keep doing that forever. Right. And so like, there, there's some stories I think you should read, but also like, I think it's okay to be a little confused. I think it's okay to not get everything. Uh, in this instance, though, it just feels like such a direct sequel to another book. And I, to be completely frank, I just didn't want to cover like a 50 issue run before jumping into this, which feels way more relevant to like the mid 2000s. Don't blame me there. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I'm enjoying every single issue. I think like we've talked about before, the art is amazing. Mm-hmm. Some of the story stuff is really cool, really badass. Um, and it doing it this way and talking to you about it gives me a chance to ask those questions about those characters. Cool. Yeah. And like I said, I wrote down like extra explainers. Um, fuck it. You want you want to just jump into it and we'll we'll figure Let's the story it. out together. Cool. Yeah. All right. So we are talking first about Astonishing X-Men issue 13. It was released February 22nd, 2006, written by Joss Whedon, drawn and inked by John Cassidy, colored by Laura Martin. And lettered by Chris Iliopoulos. Um, This is the first part of a six-part story called Torn. And it is the second-to-last arc before the story wraps up. <sighs> Some time ago, Emma Frost and a woman longtime readers will know as Cassandra Nova are talking in the jungles of South America in front of a giant haphazardly assembled master mold sentinel. Cassandra is the woman responsible for creating the giant tri-sentinel and sending it to Genosha and killing over 16 million mutants. All right, Sean, here's like my first breakout from this. Like this has nothing to do with the issue. Cassandra is fucking complicated as a character. And there's like no explainer as to who she is whatsoever in this book. They're really just assuming you know who she is and like you read the previous story. But you haven't, have you, Sean? No, I have not. And I thought it might have been Professor Xavier, to be honest. There's a really good reason for you to think that. And I'm going to jump into it right now. Cassandra's fucking complicated. And this part gets really weird. So she began as the spiritual opposite of Charles Xavier when he was conceived. She's the the yin to his yang. You know, she's the exact, the equal and opposite force. Even as a baby in his mother's uterus, he recognized her as evil and seemingly killed her when she took physical form as his twin. The doctors pronounced her a stillborn death and disposed of her body, but she survived and spent years using her impressively powerful mind to uh, assemble herself back together on a molecular level and uh, was planning revenge against her brother, Charles. But she isn't really like a person. And this is like such a fucking dumb, hard to get concept. Of course, it came from a Grant Morrison comic. They're really 
out there and they write cool shit, but also they're really confusing. And I feel stupid every time I read a Grant Morrison comic, but what, that's besides the point. She's not really a person. She's more of a like psychic parasite kind of, like I said, it's okay. complicated. It's stupid. It's awesome. For more information on Cassandra Nova, please check out new X-Men 114 by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely from 2001 and check out that whole run because she's kind of like a recurring primary villain throughout that. Also, she's really weird and and badass i don't know how much i actually like her as a villain like it's one of those things where i get kind of judgy when people create a new villain just to perfectly suit their needs like it feels kind of like a reverse deus ex machina right yeah uh however i also get frustrated when they just like kind of rely on on the old hits you know just just shut up and play this the song we all know and just have like the recurring familiar villains so like I don't know. It's complicated. Uh, I, I don't know where that leaves me as a comic book fan. If I get a little bored when they trot out the old ones and a little frustrated when they bring out the new ones. Um, does that answer any of your questions about Cassandra Nova? Yeah, it certainly does. And don't mean to go off on another tangent, but with Please? this era of comics, were there a lot of newer villains that have lasted till even today? Not not really, to be honest. Like, there's one character in the story we're going to talk about. She's in the previous couple stories we talked about. Her name's uh, Haseko, Hasako. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's it's always like small characters, and it's almost it's kind of like the NBA, where it's like these characters kind of like have to be in the G League for a little bit before okay. they get brought up to like the the main event. I will say it's probably easier for villains to just kind of swoop in, be these like tremendous shit heels right out of the gate. And they just become a big deal. Uh, usually supporting characters, it takes more of a runway for them to to really take off. But with Cassandra, right. she just immediately established herself as such a epic fucking threat that like even during like the new X-Men run, just when you think you're done with her and that she's been taken care of, she comes back every fucking time you think you can like breathe a sigh of relief. It's it's pretty incredible. It's pretty confusing that entire run where I did have to reread it a couple times. And like it happened during covid really or like just before covid hit like the fall before covid hit and uh i remember just like rereading that run because they collected it in three oversized uh trade paperbacks that are awesome and usually pretty cheap you can find those online for a pretty good price and i just remember being so bored during the pandemic i was like no i'm gonna read this until i understand it and i had to read it like two to three times (laughs) just to just to feel comfortable thinking i understood most of it it makes me feel better Oh God. Yeah. No, please don't ever, <laughs> don't, don't ever feel bad reading a comic. Cause I guarantee you, like I'm way more confused than you are reading a comic. <laughs> um, anyways, 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 uh, Emma and Cassandra are talking about what's about to happen to Genosha and that Cassandra can give her a chance to survive it. Cassandra is so powerful. She made her forget this ever happened until she has to cash in a favor, which brings us to present day. Now they mentioned something there called secondary mutation. And that was uh, like, tell me, even though I know the answer, like, do you like diamonds or whatever was like Cassandra's line. And that's referencing um, there's a thing that happened in Grant Morrison's run where they talk. They introduced the concept of uh, secondary mutations, where it's basically like, yeah, you're you basically manifest your powers at puberty, living your life, living your life. And then like 15 years later, uh, all of a sudden you just develop a second power kind of out of nowhere. But it's like your body adapting to the information it's been given after, you know, having your first power for so long. And so like with Emma Frost, she's a psychic. She's mentally incredibly strong, all this shit. And then her secondary mutation was um, like being able to turn into a diamond. 
And so she became the hardest substance. Got and it. so she did that and turned into a diamond. That's how she survived the attack on Genosha back in back in New X-Men. I know January Jones did that uh, yeah. in the movie as well. So Yeah, she sure did. Was she a good Emma Frost? I don't think so. You don't think so? Yeah, I don't think so either. I just I think, I think she, she was I think she's like a really good, like despondent housewife. Like she crushed oh, it on you, Mad Do Men. you mean like did Jan did January Jones play a good one? Yeah. Um I don't see it's not fair for me to judge because that was kind of my first intro run in with with Emma Frost. So that's kind of where my mind goes with it. Okay, so that's just like your your base for for yeah. okay. That makes sense. All right. Um, one thing on these first few pages, George, that that I noted here is the the use of on that third page, and if I'm jumping ahead here, um, the word "torn," mm-hmm. and which is kind of cool one because it's the title, and we haven't seen it used like this where it's in the middle of a page like this in between panels and it's kind of used as breaking up the timeline which i thought was cool that's a really good really good uh shout out yeah did you study english in college were you, were you like an english look guy i went to a liberal arts school so i had uh I had to take had a couple to take classes <laughs> good fucking eye sean i didn't even rate that down at Xavier Mansion, Wolverine is leading a combat training session with the remaining students in a deactivated danger room. Wolverine turns out the lights and starts wailing on these kids. The last one standing is Haseko, a student featured prominently in the last arc, who uses her power of creating armor to survive a punch from Wolverine's claws. Pissed that she felt in danger, she mumbles something in Japanese just to have Wolverine unexpectedly say something back also in Japanese. He, he's lived all over, and he has this famous history in Japan in particular. Hank McCoy, a.k.a. Beast, and Cyclops are hanging out in Hank's lab where Cyclops accuses him of being in his lab to hide from the world. And Hank retorts that Cyclops is hiding from his relationship with Emma. And that's why he's checking in on him. Little little tango between two people there just using, you know, word swords to, to slash at each other. Love that shit. The two guys seem to all, always be in a battle between, like, who's the smartest in the room? Yeah. And to be honest, it's usually Hank. <laughs> dude's just really dude's just really with it dude's just really smart out on the school grounds Piotr uh, I'm trying to use his like Russian spelling but I also like that arrangement of letters breaks my brain uh, Piotr and Kitty are laying under a tree being all romantic with each other when Kitty's dad comes out of nowhere they rejoice being returned to each other when his face melts off Kitty wakes up that whole thing was just a dream uh, she's in Piotr's arms shaken from that moment and uh, she feels like shit. This little side note. Another thing that happened during the Grant Morrison run. Uh, Kitty's dad lived on Genosha. He was like helping people survive the triacendal attack. And like that's how he died. And she wasn't there. And she feels like shit. Or she was there. I can't remember. <laughs> she couldn't save him. No, no matter what. The, the whole scene under the tree is another. When we saw some in earlier issues. Josh Whedon's a pretty horny guy it seems uh when they do the you know the line and and uh what would you call a good finish that was you know a, a little much there joss yeah that that part felt a little dirty especially reading it now 
I think I was like really excited by that when I was in in high school, being like, "Oh fuck, this, this comic's a little horny." That's cool. And <laughs> yeah, let's keep reading. There are some more horny moments, especially uh, in this story. Uh, but rereading it now, like I thought it was clever enough to like be acceptable, right? Uh, but like, man, horny is so easy to just like make shitty in a comic and I, I think this one i think this one threads the needle but like it still felt a little little gross reading it tiptoeing on the edge there yeah sure sure is that sounds like joss whedon for sure <laughs> emma frost overlooks the two from her office along with the rest of the new hellfire club there's sebastian shaw negasonic teenage warhead cassandra nova and a mysteriously robed woman who we aren't introduced to but sebastian shaw refers to her as quote perfection and so we're just going to call her perfection uh, she points to Emma and says, your game is first. Agent Abigail Brand of Sword, the uh, basically like S.H.I.E.L.D., but for outer space, is being reamed out by head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Maria Hill on the deck of the helicarrier. They exchange unpleasantries during their weird dick measuring contest, and Agent Brand returns to the peak, a stealth station operating outside of Earth's orbit. Kitty stumbles through her words and Peter quiets her with a kiss. Emma and Perfection stroll down the hallway and Perfection gets her to admit this is difficult because she truly loves Scott with her whole heart. She retires to her bedroom where Scott is doing bills and tries to seduce a frustrated Cyclops into bed. She uses her psychic powers to change her appearance into his old love, Jean Grey, in her black, green, and yellow costume. And the issue ends. So, Sean, we've taken some time off from X-Men. It's been a minute since the previous story. Um, how you feeling? What's your temperature on on coming back to the X Men after that first issue? Yeah, um, still, still fully on board here. I really like some of the things that they're doing with the art here. I, I love, and we certainly see it in a couple of these later issues here. But I'm a sucker for when they break the boundaries of the panels. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. It is, um, especially with this. You know, when they're on top of the ship here and they're having the conversation, there's some real sense of scale and height, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the Emma stuff, not being that familiar with her ahead of time, there's definitely a little bit of a, a tennis match of going back and forth and trying to keep up with, you know, some of the shape shifting and, and some of that and understanding some of the prior relationships. Um, but... I know there was a little bit of Jean Grey in the earlier issues, correct? That they 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 referenced her, right? Because oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so there's a little bit of familiarity, but we definitely jump into that some in the next issue with some of Emma's mind games. Yeah, they sure do. Um, I don't have a lot to add on this issue. I think we talked about like some of the bigger points already. Um, I do think it's. You wouldn't know this because you didn't read like the new X-Men book. And I only remember this because, like I said, I was, it was like during the pandemic and I just wanted to focus on literally anything else during those early months. Uh, but uh, Cassandra refers to Emma as like a predator, right? Or perfection refers to to Emma as a predator. And that's like what Cassandra was always referred to as as Charles Xavier. saying that like she's like a predator of mutants. Like she's like the apex will fuck up a mutant person. And so it's interesting just to see that that shoe on Emma's foot. Up until this point, I mean, prior to Astonishing, is there a lot of suspicion of Emma's, um, you know, know, her allegiance? 
Yeah. Uh, there is, like we talked about in the first arc, how like Kitty came back uh, because she like didn't trust her. And she didn't trust her because like the first time she ever met her, she was kidnapped by Emma Frost and the original Hellfire Club. And so she started off as like a, an evil mutant. That was our first introduction to her. I think it was back during like the Dark Phoenix saga. Uh, legendary run i think that was chris claremont and and john byrne back in like late 70s early 80s and that's like considered like the high watermark for x-men in general because that's when it was like it's most soap opery everyone was in love with everyone else and you know couldn't get the person they were into because the person they were into was in love with somebody else and Jean Grey came back from the dead and it was amazing she was becoming more powerful and then she was corrupted by the hellfire club and turned evil and Ended up dying at the end of that story. She eventually came back because, you know, the Phoenix dies and gets resurrected. And yeah. uh, Graham Morrison kind of hit a lot of those same notes with with his shit, his, his run, or sorry, their run. Um, really felt like a like a soap opera, just like a, a modern one. And it was like a tonal seismic shift for for not just Marvel, but just comics at the time in 2001. Like it was it was considered the new hotness when it came out. And um, yeah, so like Emma Frost came back during that run and like her and Scott were kind of having like a psychic affair during that time. And so Emma was kind of like the other woman just because Scott was feeling not close to Jean and Jean does what she always does. She dies at the end of the story, like in that Graham Morrison comic, you know, Um, but that one was. So was Jean like one true love that like, is that like, how they shape this self to be kind of yeah but i think they do a really good job of just like moving the story forward by like actually having scott and emma try like a serious relationship and i believe they started dating before gene died in the original comic so it wasn't like oh gene's dead so now i'll date you like he was like actually like chose emma over over gene just because of where they were in their relationship but now like with everything that's happening in in x-men comics now it's honestly so fucking hard to keep up with i feel like there's more x-men comics coming out today on a monthly basis than there were in the 90s and they basically they fix death in that comic so people can just like be reborn and download like a backup of their minds or whatever and so it's like scott's back with scott's back with gene and honestly i like him so much more with emma than i ever did with gene Okay. Sean, are you ready to jump in to the next issue? Yes. Or any, issue any more questions? Issue 14, yeah. Um, no, but the the cover of this one continues some of the horniness. So let's... Sure does. Yeah, man. The covers for this arc in particular are pretty great. Like the first one was like that really stoic, badass pose of all of them just looking incredibly cool right. with like a red background. This one is a blue and pink hueish cover of of like Wolverine kissing Emma with some big man muscles some oh yeah just rocking them arm cakes yeah yeah all right uh this issue is uh sorry astonishing x-men 14 came out april 26 2006 this issue is a bit of a mind fuck literally like it opens with a memory of scott's where he's with gene and they're talking about holding back their power and how scott's tony court's visor literally changes the way he sees the world and it's uh, it's all metaphors for like how they're really feeling but they're talking about something else then you cut to present day and scott is sick of emma's shit and the way she's playing games with him the way she's like dressed up as gene 
but she wears him down and he eventually kisses her but catches the mirror and sees that uh, she no longer looks like Jean but he looks like Wolverine the person Scott wishes he could be more like according to Emma so uh, I didn't get here why is why is Emma trying constantly kind of play these mind games with him why is she trying to piss him off um, they reveal why later in the story but right here it honestly just seems like he, they're going through therapy and uh, the way she explains it currently in the story like in issue two is that like yeah like there's a rift going like growing between us before and then like everything that happened in the last story arc I think it was called just danger or dangerous whatever Um, like everything just got worse because there was like that one moment where she like wasn't fighting but like went off to be by herself and it turns out she right. was talking to the hellfire club and Scott was like super pissed at her for that and so she's uh, she's just like interjecting being like alright let's just fix the relationship now fuck it and so that was like the reasoning she used to start doing all this shit to Scott and why he's kind of accepting it. But there's actually like a sinister subconscious reason that we're going to discuss later in the story. Yeah, I do remember how absurd it was that she there was a mega battle going on and she just moseyed on off. Yeah. And like thought no one would notice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of horniness, elsewhere in the mansion, Kitty and Pitor are knocking boots so hard that she phases through the floor and crashes into the common room below, grabs a blanket off the couch to cover herself, and immediately runs back upstairs to uh, <laughs> to get back into her bedroom. <laughs> uh, that moment, I remember at like let's see, April 26, 2006, I was 15. Uh, I remember reading that and being like, oh, I get it! <laughs> I know what happened. I I, I understand. Yeah. I, I understand this. And and let me. I mean, all of these X Men are pretty people. So oh, they're all gorgeous. For, I think we talked about this on another podcast in this feed. But it's it's like the Olympic Village how they just go through like so many thousands of <laughs> condoms every every oh, Olympics because yeah. it's like oh, what you want to take the people with like probably like some of the most beautiful, most physically gifted people that have ever lived. And you want to put them all in the same small area and make them incredibly nervous about how they're going to perform the next day. Like, huh. I wonder what they're going to do at night to unwind. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's probably some high uh, disease rates over there at the academy. I don't think there is because they hand out so many fucking condoms at, (laughs) at at the Olympics. That's like an actual stat. I'll I'll pull that stat for the, uh, the Twitter feed. We need the uh, the sex ed uh, issue of X Men where they're having the class with the you know the chalkboard and everything and the uh, you know Catholic Catholic America uh, video and everything that they show telling you that's bad. Mm-hmm. That'd be so weird because there is like there's some characters who are just like like one dude's like made out of rock and other dude's like kind of a chicken like a like a literal chicken like an actual like bird and so i'm like okay does he have a dick or does he have a cloaca because he's a bird like they how, get how does very that... creative yeah so like i just don't know what kind of condom you use if your body is like granite you know <laughs> so it's it's tough i mean they there should be a sex ed class absolutely because like I mean, they do how, have how some... are you supposed to know and they do have some good laboratories there, so I'm sure they can. Yeah, that. Hank Hank Pym could work something up in, in no time. <laughs> yeah. Um, back to Emma and Scott. Emma starts prodding at Scott's insecurities about being a leader, saying all the other X Men had more to offer, and Scott, when challenged, would often lose. She says that Xavier gave him control of the potentially most powerful team in the world out of pity because he had literally nothing else. She is just destroying this man on a mental level, and we'll see why soon. At the peak, the headquarters of Sword, 
Uh, communication with Breakworld has been cut off, signaling now, that an attack is imminent. George, Dave. before we get there, there was one panel there that had, they were talking about leaders, right? And they had Mr. Fantastic. There was yeah. Captain America. There was a third guy there that I'm not familiar with. Who is that? Um, it's like, I don't know. Uh, what, what page is it on? Yeah, I got I got him right. Uh, that's um, <clears throat> that's Black Bolt. That is the leader of the Inhumans. Okay, I just wasn't familiar. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, at the peak, the headquarters resort communication with Breakworld has been cut off, signaling that an attack is imminent. They find out that Breakworld has the exact time and identity of the X Man that's going to destroy their world. Emma takes Scott to a place called the Bug Room, a psychic hell of his that Cassandra once placed him in. Emma keeps prodding him and takes him to a repressed memory that no one had ever seen before, of a young Scott in a medical facility with his eyes wrapped in gauze. Present-day Scott is crying as Emma tells him it's time to let go. Wolverine deduces that Piotr and Kitty are banging again. Beast thinks he sees uh, Emma approach his lab, but realizes too late that it's Cassandra Nova. Emma begins narrating, quote, There's so much you thought you could never face. The decision not to try to control your power, to let it be your demon. Too shameful to remember, so you let it eat your life up instead. But you're past it now, Scott. And all you had to defeat, all you had to let go of, was you. You're free, my love. You're free. And so that narration is playing over panel after panel of Scott just being a fucking vegetate on his bed he is just completely out of it he's drooling his eyes are lifeless he's not blinking she has completely destroyed him mentally with her little exercise that she tried to pass off as couples counseling she is a dark abusive girlfriend yeah but that's also a good lesson don't date your therapist it's true that is a conflict of interest yeah draw some draw some lines there it's okay they do a lot of these shots, though, of the kind of lifeless zoom in of the eyes. Mm-hmm. I know there was some in some previous issues here. It's pretty cool. And I think there's something that they do with these or these reflections that they do and the way that they do the glowing edges and things like you see on the the space station and stuff. It's really cool. Yeah, the coloring. That's that's Laura Martin. I think her name was Laura Depoy at the time. Um, extremely talented, probably like one of the best colorists of the last 30, 40 years. Um, awesome stuff. Yeah, usually does John Cassidy's stuff. And I think, yeah, she did like, uh, what's it called? Like Planetary and and I think The Authority and, and shit like that. She's she's very good. Um, also, Reflection's major theme of the story, especially because like Cassandra Nova is the twisted reflection of, of Xavier. So there's a lot of reflective services like we saw. That moment where Scott sees himself in the mirror, except he's not Scott, he's Wolverine. And we see uh, an, another moment that, of prominence with the mirror in a later issue. So, yeah. All right. Astonishing X-Men number 15. This came out June 21st, 2006. Same creative team as before. Whew. Emma walks down the hallways of Xavier Mansion crying for help, saying Scott's in trouble and she needs Henry. That is uh, Hank McCoy. In his lab, confronted by Cassandra, Beast is becoming more animalistic as she shuts down his higher brain functions as the silhouette of a clawed wolverine rises behind her. 
Piotr takes Scott to the infirmary and is confused when Emma disappears. Kitty checks on the students and comes across a sadistically smiling Negasonic teenage warhead. Uh, let's talk about her for a second. Uh, another Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly creation from the new X-Men uh, 115. Uh, she's kind of a Swiss army knife. She has a ton of powers, including super speed, strength, light psychic abilities, and uh, precognition. Um, she's also like that person in the Deadpool movie. Like, you know how it's like Colossus, Deadpool, and like a little teenager? Oh. Yeah, same I thought, character. I thought the name was similar. Same okay. character. They ended up later changing the way she looks in the comics to reflect her her movie appearance in Deadpool. But that is in in th- theory, quote like the the same character. She kind of looks like Johnny Depp in Lone Ranger too. Yeah, a little bit. She's basically like if Wednesday Adams had superpowers, kind of. Like she seems very okay. much like Christina Ritchie, except like a little more unhinged. Yeah. So, like, if if uh, April Ludgate from Parks and Recreation had uh, great power and, and no responsibility. Sounds dangerous. Yeah. Not what you want. Uh, let's see. She takes over Kitty's powers and makes her phase away, avoiding conflict altogether. So Kitty's just sinking into the floor. Sebastian Shaw startles Piotr, who turns into his organic metal form and starts beating the absolute fuck out of Shaw. Wolverine has been reduced mentally to a posh child, a little Victorian dandy, who loves crafts and is absolutely terrified of a now inhuman beast who's chasing him. Kitty continues phasing down into the Earth's crust with magma and stalactites and all that shit. She is like deep down the Earth. It kind of looks like she's falling into hell. I wonder if that was on purpose. I, I think it was. I think it was on purpose. Uh, Hisako is trying to comfort her friend Blindfold. Uh, that is like the eyeless mutant um, who also has like psychic and, and precognitive abilities. Uh, who yeah. she heard crying in a bathroom stall from the hallway. She says, quote, we're going to lose another one. When Wolverine bursts through the door saying there's a giant blue moose chasing after him. Just as Beast is about to take a bite out of Blindfold. Uh, Hiseko armors up and punches him through a wall. She goes up a level. You know, she normally has blue or like light red armor. Then she it looks like she's out of fucking Power Rangers for a second. She looks like she just mega zorded up. And uh, awesome. that, that power level manages to scare Beast off. It was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> the All the art here. I mean, the amount of detail when Beast comes um, bursting into the bathroom. I mean, there's some really cool stuff here. And, and I've been reading this one on my iPad. And I don't know if just because it's digital and, and you get some of that, the lighting of the screen and stuff, but it really makes it pop. And there's yeah. points in there where it feels almost three, you know, 3D. It does pop. And we talked about this, I think, in a previous episode where we talked about John Cassidy, yeah. where it's like the dude draws so simply that like even like it, it's seemingly such small details where like, you know, he'll draw like a fist coming through something right or like a fist like coming towards the camera and it's just like the most simple geometrically safe i guess like rendition of a fist but then like just like the little clenches that are there like in the knuckles of like you know a tightened fist like gripping and like making cloth and fabric move we're just like holy shit this is the best looking fist i've ever seen in a comic book like that looks like a punch is really coming at me it's like that selective uh, micro level of details is just always astounding whenever you see John Cassidy pencils. And the other thing too is some of these, 
you know, shots in these issues of um, when they're out in space and they're on the ship. It, I think a lot of times that look can be kind of cheesy and stuff, but the way they do it here is really cool and gives you a real set of being very removed from all the action that's happening down on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with Laura Martin's colors specifically. Like I, I like I yeah. said, I think she's one of the best of like the last four decades. She's an incredible talent. Uh, speaking of space stations, from orbit, the agents of Sword comment that the X Men cannot catch a break. Hidden from security systems, the manifestation of the Danger Room, a digital mutant named Danger, begins to strike a deal with Ord in his prison cell. You remember Ord, that old alien from a. Uh, from yeah. the first oh, age, yeah. the first arc the, of the Stashing X, the Ninja Turtle looking guy, yeah, 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 yeah fuck yeah, <clears throat> uh, breaks him. Uh, oh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, back on Earth, uh, Shaw reminds Colossus that his power is to absorb kinetic energy. Looking broken and bloodied, Shaw hits Colossus once in the head. He does that really cool thing where he just like slaps his hands together on uh, on the sides of Colossus's ears. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, silver blood spills from his nose and he immediately passes out. Quote, Summers is a zombie, prides a ghost, Rasputin a victim of his own rage, and believe me, he has plenty of it. Comment Shaw, now regrouped with the other members of Hellfire. My two were simplicity itself, responds Cassandra. A beast who thought he was a man and a frightened little boy who fancied himself a beast. In a cavern below the mansion, Kitty Pride rises. In corporeal form, she regained control of her powers and remembers what Emma Frost said to her when she first brought her to the team. Now it's my turn, she says, as she strikes a pose made famous by Wolverine in Uncanny X-Men 132 back in 1980. That's a deep cut, but not that deep because it's one of the most famous X-Men stories of all time. So I guess it's just a cut, not a deep cut. But it's funny because that story is like, the first time the X-Men were ever fighting the Hellfire Club. So here they are fighting them again and her just like doing like that little turn with like her arm up like this. That is the pose made famous by Wolverine all those issues ago where every other X-Men was disabled and and, uh, incarcerated by the Hellfire Club except for Wolverine who's in the sewers below and then went fucking berserker mode. That was like his first big like holy shit who is this guy moment. That's awesome. I I didn't put two and two together, but you're absolutely right. Because as soon as you say that, and I, I haven't read that issue, but I know exactly which pose you're talking about because you see that a lot mm-hmm. with Wolverine stuff. And I can definitely see this panel in one of those like Marvel after credit scenes, you know, where you see it on premiere weekend and all the fanboys are screaming in the in the theater with it. Could definitely see that happening here. Yeah, and everyone else is like, "Why are you so excited?" He just did a weird thing. Like, it's just like, he, yeah, but you don't has, get it. You don't get it. He just has weird anatomy, and then as a loser, you're like, "No, but that's on Kitty X Men One Thirty Two by yeah. by Chris Claremont and John Byrne it's from Nineteen Eighty. It means the tables are about to get turned, bitch." Like, yeah, that, that's where I uh, saw a tweet this past week about Troy Baker in the Last of Us episode, where all the girlfriends that had to endure their boyfriends whispering in the ear, going. That's who plays Joel in the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it... yeah. I, I spoke to Singer at once with Troy Baker. Nice guy. No way. No way. That's awesome. Yeah, um, that, uh... One thing I saw in this issue that I thought was really cool. I, I like the softer uh, arts and crafts side of Wolverine. You know, could really go for an HGTV show with Wolverine and, and uh, see what it does. 
Yeah, I wonder, because uh, he already has like those claws, which aren't that different than hooks. I wonder how he would do a crochet, you know? Exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Astonishing X-Men 16 came out August 23rd, 2006. They're on kind of like a like a bi-monthly schedule now where it's coming out every other month. But uh, in, in their defense, John Cassidy makes beautiful art, so give him all the time he needs. And I assume Joss Whedon was... Uh, a being a monster to someone, but B was also working on a lot of TV shows at the time. So, what was the hype level of these releases at the time, George? Do you remember? Uh, extremely, extremely high. Like, I don't even know because I don't know how much I understood this book when it was coming out. I think the first arc does a pretty good job of being new reader friendly. I think the second arc kind of does, but like the first arc references an X Men thing that happened two or three years earlier when when Pitor died with the legacy virus. The second yeah. issue specifically references shit that happened during new X-Men when Xavier used Shi'ar technology to upgrade the danger room. Yep. And then this is referencing a lot of Grant Morrison stuff, a lot of other stuff too. Like the Hellfire Club is one of the more famous X-Men stories, but like I'm a nerd. That's why I went back and read that shit. Like if you're, if you're like a casual fan picking this up, I don't know if everyone who was just reading this book had read the dark Phoenix saga, which was like the introduction of hellfire club, you know, like, I just, I don't know how deep the cuts were, but Joss Whedon was the hottest writer in comics at the time. It was like him and Brian K Vaughn were competing for like most popular. And John Cassidy was taking a break from planetary, which was supposed to just be like a 28 issue story ended up taking like nearly 10 years to, to finish, but the writer got really sick. Other noted sex pest, Warren Ellis. Um, a lot of sex pests in comics, unfortunately. But uh, John Cassidy was like probably it was like him and Brian Hitch were like the two hottest artists, you know. And uh, because of that, this shit was just off the charts. Like everyone was still like, this is back when they thought Firefly was going to come back, you know. Okay. And I think this, I think this is before Serenity came out, the movie, like the follow up to to firefly this is back when they thought they could save the show and so yeah just two two of the biggest names so this was even though it was extremely confusing this arc in particular uh very very much top of everyone's read list at the time very cool to know also the indie scene just like wasn't really developed at the time like you you had a bunch of books like i think why the last man fables but it's just it's so much bigger now you know, like all yeah. all of Image's books, like Image kind of became megalithic, like at this time, because this is when like Invincible really first came into yep. its own. And they started getting like other big creators, like just common like pitch series. And so I think there was also just like less competition. I, th- I think now, I mean, I may be wrong, but almost all of those series that I listed off at the start of the episode here were Image. I mean, at least all yeah the indie labels yeah no i mean if it feels that the guy yeah i I totally believe that but um image was not the same then as it is now and um no it's it's just pretty amazing like just how big marvel and dc were just because it was so hard to get a fucking image book at the time right and then all these big name authors from Marvel and DC were like, oh man, you're telling me I could get paid so much more to do my own book and I get to own the property and maybe license that into another medium, like a TV script or a, or a film plot. Like, okay. 
That's why Mark Millar doesn't write Marvel books anymore. <laughs> you know, like he wrote fucking yeah. Civil War. He wrote nineteen eighty five. He wrote Fantastic Four for sixteen issues. Like they'd love to have him back, but like they just can't pay him what he can earn for himself. Right. Have you seen that documentary about the about Image and how it started? Uh, I've seen a documentary. I'm not sure if I've seen the one you're talking okay. about. Um, but there's one if you just YouTube it, it it's there in. I think there may only be one, so we might be talking about the same one, but highly recommend it for those, um, especially those that are coming, because what George was talking about, you get to see really go into detail, and it's some of the biggest talents from these DC and Marvel stories that switched over. Oh, cool. Yeah, send me the list. I will uh, retweet it, and I'll also try to watch it this weekend. That sounds fun. All right, Astonishing X-Men 16. Ord of Breakworld breaks out from his cell thanks to the help of Danger and immediately escapes the station via a shuttle piloted by his new robotic partner. Back at the mansion, Blindfold and Haseko come across a returned Kitty Pride cradling a knocked-out Pietor in her arms. Beast manages to catch Wolverine and take a bite out of his leg, but Wolverine subconsciously pops his claws and gives him a good punch and scares him off. The Hellfire Club comes across a weird metallic chest that can't be opened and defends itself from attack. Nobody's able to break in and everyone gets pissed at Negasonic Teenage Warhead for phasing out Kitty into the center of the Earth. Turns out she was part of the plan all along, but nobody told Warhead. Even Cassandra messed up by devolving Hank Pym, resident super genius. Uh, he could have been useful, but all of a sudden he's very much not. He's just a little little kitty cat running around the, running around the grounds. So a few pages earlier, George Woman or is doing his best bull in a china shop rendition there's one of the agents there the one with the green hair remind me of her name uh, um but she, she had a tattoo that said grace is there any significance to that if there is i cannot remember okay it, uh, she's you said green haired and uh sunglasses uh no sunglasses in these Okay. Uh, panels, but there's Grace, and it looks like Anna on the other arm. So I was wondering if that was any deeper references to previous characters. No, wait. Can you show me the panel really quick? Yeah. All right, it's the green-haired one. Yeah. Okay, that's Abigail Brand. If there is significance, uh, she appears a lot in the next story. She might might reveal it then. But off the top of my head, I do not remember the significance of those. All right. Was just trying to play detective here. Oh, good. Oh, good. Sean Locke Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, needing a break from all the infighting at the Hellfire Club, Emma walks about and catches her reflection, which quickly turns into a punch from Kitty, who grabs her and phases her down into the caverns below. She leaves her stranded down there and returns to the school to see that all the other students have been put in some kind of a suspended animation. She's confronted by Perfection, who removes her hooded robe to reveal herself to be the White Queen. Emma Frost's old identity when she was first running with the Hellfire Club way back in the day. That's like what we were talking about, that that book from 1980. On the peak, sword agents get combat ready and storm the location they know Ord is heading, the X-Mansion. They reveal that the X-Man is destined i'm sorry they reveal that the x-men destined to destroy Breakworld is none other than colossus the mutant that ord had brought back from the dead in the first place that's the end of the issue that was pretty cool yeah um okay so i assume you guys i see you got a hand up i assume your question is about the white queen like and like what the fuck's going on there 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So when we first meet Emma, she is the white queen of the Hellfire Club. It's kind of lame. They all have like different nicknames. We're like, oh, I'm the Red King. I'm the Black Queen. I'm or, I'm the White Queen. Like it's all these different characters who just like uh, have different roles there, you know? Yeah. And uh, the White Queen was like Emma's evil terrible persona and so that is like the original rendition of emma is the white queen and so we as the readers are just confused as fuck even kitty's confused as fuck like when she reveals that she is the white queen uh like kitty looks astonished at first and then like falls up with yeah but what like she like can't even find like the right words like explain so it's not supposed to make sense yet it'll all make sense soon unless you want me to just say fuck it and just explain it to you now Hey, it's your show, George. Uh, I'm along for the ride here, so I can strap in and wait. I'm a patient man. All right, well, let's strap in and wait. We've got two more issues to go, and uh, then we can just wrap up our thoughts at the end. Astonishing X-Men 17 came out September 20th, 2006. Uh, Kitty and Pitor are celebrating the birth of their child, Michael. The entire X-Team is in attendance, and Kitty gleefully brags about him to the professor in particular. While in the park one day, she's confronted by the team, saying that the boy is dangerous and must be taken away for everyone's protection. She's even betrayed by Colossus, who knocks her out with one punch. Later, a mentally destroyed Kitty holds an axe through Pitor's temple, saying that if he even blinks... She will make the axe solid, killing him instantly. He says their boy is in a box in the basement, and he won't try to stop her. Now, this is all a mental projection by the White Queen, who's convincing Kitty to do the one thing no one else can do. That's a break into the steel box, and we're still not sure what's in the box. We can guess if we read New X, but I hadn't at the time, so I had no fucking clue what was in the box. Uh... The team up at the peak are getting ready to head down to Xavier Mansion. Now they've confirmed that it's danger that busted Ord out. They talk to their mole, and it turns out it was Lockheed the entire time. He was the one who was feeding information about the X-Men to to Sword. Lockheed is Kitty's little purple pet alien dragon. Sean, I just said so many weird sentences in a row. What, what What's up? What, what's on your mind right now? <laughs> I mean, one, there seems to be a lot of issues with Professor X and babies. I don't know why he hates babies so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, great note, great note. But um, also, yeah, I mean, Barney was given all the intel. Yeah, uh, f- fuck, man. Flying dragon. I like want to say I'm a, a big Marvel comic book head in particular, um, I like gun to my head. I couldn't fucking tell you anything about Lockheed except that like Kitty got a dragon. Like the X Men have like so many spacefaring adventures. Turns out like Cyclops's dad is like a member of like an intergalactic r- resistance cell called the Star Jammers. Like X Men yeah, in particular, are just fucking weird. Like I, I I can't like describe it any other way. And so I don't even know if, like, she just finds Lockheed on Earth. I don't know if she finds him while, like, they're out in space. I don't know Lockheed's deal. But I just, like, remember reading X-Men comics. And she just had a pet dragon. And I just remember rolling with it. I mean, I'll tell you, if I if I go to space, I'm coming back with a dragon. Yeah, right? Especially, like, a little, little cute frumpy one. It's like, oh, like, you're powerful. But, like, you're not, like, the scariest looking dragon. You look kind of like a, like a softball coach, you know? Yeah, I mean... The dragon, there was definitely some little cutesy images of the dragon, but now it looks like it's been 
doing CrossFit for the past couple of years. So yeah, but it's also like you kind of still have like a soft body of like a retired cop who's in like a hockey beer league. <laughs> you, you know, like yeah, like you can see like oh man, you used to be like a little, little golden god once, but you kind of let kind of let the pounds packed on just That's, a little uh, bit. I can throw this here steak over that mountain exactly. <laughs> Uh, all right, Wolverine manages to shake Haseko awake, and Blindfold manages to wake up Colossus. The Hellfire Club watch Kitty going through the motions of releasing her son from the prison, talking about Emma's better half being helpless to stop them down below. So this is when we start piercing together, sorry, piecing together that things are weird, and I promise we're going to explain all this shit in the next issue. It all comes together, and I think it comes together really well, but I, I'm excited for you to be the judge. Colossus stumbles into the room and sees Kitty as she manages to use her powers to phase through the incredibly dense and atom-shifting metals of the box. She pulls out this weird gestational larva-looking thing, and that's what Cassandra Nova really is. That's like her physical body and like her, her full mental self is in that little green, slimy turd thing. Uh, Emma okay. trapped her. It's starting in to come together. Emma trapped her in that the last time Cassandra attacked, uh, but she still thinks uh, she's holding her son. Colossus immediately passes out from the gross and powerful shit uh, that the Cassandra Nova blob can can do. Like, I'm going to answer, answer some questions, I think, at the end of this issue. <laughs> Danger and Ord come crashing through the ceiling of the house, blowing Haseko and Wolverine by the wayside. Wolverine crashes into the fridge, where Beer rolls out and hits him on the head, seemingly knocking him out of his dazed state. Ord is begging Danger to take him to Colossus, but something's going on. Like, the computers aren't communicating with her the same way. She's struggling. She's not as, as apex predator-y as she was in, like, the last issue. Cassandra, now reunited with her physical and mental uh, self, will need a few minutes to make the integration complete. She says she's going to take over Kitty's body, saying her power is too good to pass up. She's controlling the fuck out of the rest of the Hellfire Club, saying she's going to melt everyone down to atoms, and they all accept it happily, saying it would be a pleasure. It's weird in a James Bond villain way, where everyone's just like, oh yes, for your vision to succeed, I must die. Like, they're all just, like, buying into it. And so it's pretty clear that she's, like, mentally controlling all these people, because Sebastian Shaw is kind of like a self-preservationist at heart. Uh, anyways, the White Queen is then shot three times. You get a blam, you get a blam, and you get one final blam. And uh, shot by Cyclops, who no longer has his powers and isn't wearing his visor. Sean, that was the penultimate issue of this story arc. How are you feeling as we head into the final stretch? I mean, there was a lot there. You you explaining the little baby worm maggot. Yeah, the weird turd, weird green yeah, turd thing. Yeah, Definitely clarified some things. I think, though... Um, I think there were really, really panels. I I really like what they did about giving every character kind of something that jogs the memory or triggers them or brings them back to reality kind of thing. I mean, when Wolverine hits that fridge, those two panels where he's looking at the beer and they focus on the beer can and then they then he's back in focus again is so really good. cool how they do that. So good. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I mean the Shots at the end, you're not expecting that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. for him, that must have been a lot, especially since she's kind of like this version of Emma Frost. And that last image is 
so cool. The smoke coming from that gun. I was like, holy hell, I have on here. Man, that gun. Um, but I was also going to ask, had X-Men been this quote-unquote violent to this point before? Like, a lot of these superhero ones, you don't see, at least to my knowledge, a lot of gunplay. And to see that at the end was a little surprising. Not, that's a great question. Not really. Like Wolverine obviously has no problems, like, you know, cutting loose and being fucking gross, both with his claws and also with guns. Like he's used that shit in the past. But generally every other X-Men has been kind of, kind of restrained, actually. I think there's like one famous scene where it's either, I can't remember if it's Emma Frost or Charles Xavier during like the Grant Morrison run. One of them, I think, like, uses a 12-gauge to, like, blow someone away because it's, like, literally, like, they're out of options. Either a 12-gauge or, like, a 9mm, please. Like, I haven't read that comic in, in three years at this point, four years at this point. And like I said, I, I just don't understand Grant Morrison comics at, <laughs> at first. So please don't butcher me for not remembering what type of gun they used. Yeah, how, uh, how dare you, George? But, I mean, generally, like, they don't have to. Like, I mean, Cyclops has a visor you know that he can just like shoot right. lasers out of basically right or sorry a concussive force blast fuck you it's the same thing <laughs> um again don't butcher me for that uh and so like they just never needed to like they're evolved like they are beyond the constraints of humanity they have become better they have become other they have become ascended and so they generally don't have to that's why it's so weird and like i got some notes here for for cyclops <laughs> in the beginning of the next issue that uh damn i'm so excited to jump into because this is this is when things like start to feel different, and that's that's one thing I appreciate about this issue in particular. Any other uh, questions before we wrap up the story? No, I I mean again, there's some horniness here. I feel like you know they try to emphasize some of the scantily clad uniforms uh, and put that kind of forefront and center in a few of these. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I think. Again, visually, the the wordplay and stuff is is very cool. I, something as simple as like the blam, blam, blam when the shots happen. They do this black on red that that's consistent throughout this series so far has been really cool, and it it's used sparingly, but mm-hmm. only in the really big, heavy hitting shots. Yeah, and the, the cleverness you're talking about, I think, is on full display in this issue. Because, like, when Emma first mentally neutered Scott, right? Like, when he turned her into Wolverine, uh, he was so mad, he, like, popped his claws and tried to punch her. And, like, Emma has some line of, like, silly Scott, like, you don't really have claws. And then, like, in this scene, when he, like, shoots the White Queen, and it's just like, what'd you expect? I don't have claws. You know, like, just, like, actual, like, callbacks to to earlier in the story. Um, I, I think all that stuff is weaved in here really effectively. And man, it was so tough because like this series started in February and ended in November. So it took like nine months to get six issues. And like, I don't think I was doing like that good of a job, to be honest, of like rereading issues just because I was like getting so many books. And let's see, I was at this point, I was 16. And so I was just a little preoccupied with other things. I didn't have time to reread you know, six issues of X-Men on top of everything else. On uh, I was wanted to read for comics on top of, you know, going out and bowling with my friends, you know, like sneaking into weird movies, going skinny dipping in lakes with, with girls Watching I had crushes on. 
watching fallout boy and panic at the disco to jack johnson transitions on fuse i mean yeah i mean doing that there's a lot of things to do 2006 i believe i had batman begins and boogie nights on dvd speaking of horniness so yeah i was was a busy kid you know um and so like i don't know if i like got all these little callbacks and nods but man just like burning through these issues in a day i'm just like oh fuck okay that's good that's it's just like a really satisfying moment when they do that i think this series especially i first ran run through of this arc i went through started several months ago four or five months ago i think and then stopped and then read it through again over the past couple days but this one gives you some big payoffs of going both ways with that. Mm-hmm. I think there there's some things that if you give it the time and you look through it, you get a lot out of it. But also, if you read it straight through, there's a lot of the cool callbacks, like you said. Oh, I went through and finished the series the last time we recorded because I was like so caught up in it again. And then I haven't read it. Like, I didn't even take notes. I was like, nope, fuck it. This one's for me. This isn't for the show. Like, I just want to like read the story and see where it goes after finishing the danger arc. And now I was like, fuck, I should have taken notes. So just it would be over. I could, just, <laughs> yeah. I could just move on. But I was so happy to go back and reread it. And honestly, like these read so much faster than a lot of other books we cover. Uh, taking the notes was the hard part, especially this one, just because it's pretty fucking intricate. Anyways, you're, you're ready to wrap up the story and then uh, talk about our thoughts about it all together. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Astonishing X-Men 18, November 15th, 2006. Uh, first page is neurons struggling to fire in full conversation, but there's a sweetness to the exchange. More on that later. Uh, Scott stands over the dying body of the white queen when Cassandra puts her hand on his head and tries to take over his mind. Quote, can't mess with my mind, lady. I already lost it. He says right before he blows a bullet from her chin through her fucking brain. Through a communicator, he's talking to Blindfold, who's helping him through the situation. But she's suddenly distracted by a feral Hank McCoy who seems intent on eating her alive. She hands him a little box saying it was something he and Scott talked about in case something like this ever happened. And it's a ball of yarn, which seems offensive, but there's a reason. There's also the way they do these two panels here where you see her top half, like shoulders up, and then you see it focused on the box. But in the same way, when when you view it together, the panels are aligned in a way where it's almost one image. One image, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was pretty clever. It's really cool. It's like, this is sometimes done in movies and it's called like a split diopter shot, but like this is how you do it in in comics where it's like there's two things that are happening, like two different points of interest, but like they're technically in focus together. I think this is like the equivalent of it. It's it's obviously not one-to-one because it's more impressive when they do it in film, to be honest, especially like when Brian De Palma was doing that shit. Like in blowout. I'm getting lost yeah. on a tangent. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Anyways, um, it's it's kind of like a very similar filmic language, which uh is, is always just really cool to see. And definitely something I've stolen in the few dumb comics I've made on my own time. Just because I think that shit looks so cool. Completely oh, agree. Uh Pietor regains consciousness in front of an unhinged Scott who's just blasting away at people, shooting Shaw in one panel and Negasonic Teenage Warhead in another. He's never been this relaxed in his entire life. Like, he's just so cool and casual and just like, no, it's just another day. Like, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. You know, he's just like, he seems like a dude who just fucking snapped. Uh, Meanwhile, Danger and Order looking for Colossus and an armored Haseko comes crashing in out of nowhere like Triple H off the top rope. 
smashing them both to the ground. They all bicker back and forth when a revitalized Wolverine comes in with a mean right hook, decapitating danger from her body. Kitty regains so consciousness. Badass. Oh, it's so fucking cool, right? God, what a what a scene. Uh, Kitty regains consciousness and worries about her son before she's filled in on what really happened. Uh, he tells her there's only one way to win. She has to save Emma. Thank you, Scott, for telling her what needs to be done. The four-way fight between Wolverine, Haseko, Ord, and Danger is getting nuts. Danger throws Haseko into Wolverine's claws, stabbing her in the back. When suddenly a three-piece suited Hank enters the room and magnetizes the ceiling, launching Ord and Danger skyward and immobilizing them. Hank reveals it wasn't just a ball of yarn that brought him out, but the yarn was laced with pheromones, aerosol, smart drugs, light sequences, all this like really complicated shit that is meant to open back up the pathways in his brain in case it ever failed restoring him. And uh, he tells that to Wolverine, and then he's just like, Wolverine, what was it for you? And he's like, beer. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it's like, it's like same general <laughs> principle. Yeah. Similar thing, yeah. Um, Emma is losing her mind in the dark. She thinks she sees an angel coming to take her, and she insists she doesn't deserve it, that she should be below. Cry me a river, bitch. We're going up, responds Kitty. <laughs> Scott pulls a Sherlock Holmes and explains the whole thing to a now reunited team, saying that before Cassandra faded the first time, or I guess the most recent time, uh, she planted a bit of herself as a suggestion in Emma's mind and played off of her guilt to manipulate her. There is no Hellfire Club. Like, there's no other people there. It was Cassandra instructing Emma to carry out all these things. And so it was her using her psychic powers to make people believe. Like, she was just manifesting these people to make them believe they were fighting them. And Scott points this out by being like, hey, do you ever see two people in the same room at the same time? Like, just like uses that logic because there's a flashback where he's on the infirmary table. We thought he was brain dead, but he's watching Colossus, like, not fight anyone. Just saying that, like, no, Sebastian Shaw was never fucking here. Uh, Guilt, Scott says. Guilt about falling in with Shaw, becoming the White Queen, failing her students in Genosha, surviving. Survivor's guilt is unbelievably powerful. The randomness of who lives, the responsibility towards those who didn't. There's a voice in her telling her she's evil. She's always been evil. And that even Genosha was all her fault. And she thinks that voice is hers. Whew, powerful shit from Scott. Turns out, like, the little voice in her head telling her she sucks uh, isn't her. It's not anxiety. It's not self-doubt. It is literally Cassandra twisting her neurons into making her believe. Uh that she is is evil and and all these things should be done let's see now the psychic suggestion of cassandra is pushing emma to move faster that she's running out of time and kitty is unimpressed with scott's reasoning so she fights him takes his gun and points it at emma saying she's lived three unbearable years in a moment because of emma's mental bullshit gymnastics that she was making her run through and scott points out that Cassandra brought her there to open the box, not Emma. Emma brought her there to do exactly what she's doing now, which is to kill her in case this happens. Because the second Emma dies, all this is over. The last remnant thing of of Cassandra is is done. Uh, they just need to take care of that weird little goopy body thing. But the the one in the driver's seat is is over. Uh, Ord and Danger break into the room, but before they can attack, they're all sucked up into a spaceship by Agent Brand and her sword strike team. And they're blasting off to break world. Blindfold is sitting outside being comforted by another student who's come out of like their weird sleepy time coma thing. And she tells him, yeah, yeah, they're all going, but they're not all coming back. And that is the end of Torn. Sean, what'd you think? That was a deep 
fucking stupid but awesome but confusing <laughs> but cool story where where we where we land guy it, certainly a lot went on that's for sure <laughs> I, I mean thank you for making some clarifications on on some of this i mean the hellfire club it it went over my head that that they f- weren't fully there and understanding that and and the pulling at the neurons and, and all that stuff so um baby cassandra is something else yeah i feel like really deep down this is just confusing fight club right this is just like <laughs> unclear fight club yeah yeah if that's actually it on um I didn't understand the story at the time, and honestly, it kind of turned me off of Astonishing X-Men, but the next arc is fucking incredible. It's really good. It's so good, Sean. So I'm glad I stuck with it. I remember vividly reading, like, the next issue, like, on my couch, like, in in my dad's house when I was 16. Yeah, I would have been 16. And just, like, sitting there being like, holy shit, man, this is so cool. But uh, this story almost lost me, man. I enjoyed it so much more this time around. But I got to ask you, like, this series was billed as, like, the new flagship X-Men title. It started with a brand new number one. Had top-tier talent, uh, writing it, drawing it, coloring it, lettering it. Um, everything about it was meant to be prestige and open and accessible. I think it started out that way. I think it just got up its own ass, especially in this arc. I think this is, like... Yeah. A great comic arc if it were included in the original run with fucking Cassandra Kane, but it's not. There's like no mention. There's no clarity on who she is at all, why she exists, what she's doing right. here, what her motivation is besides just fucking hating Charles, who frankly isn't even around in the first place. So like what fucking difference does it make? And so it's just really confusing motivation wise. And like, I just can't believe that this is like the, the second to last arc in what's considered like such an amazing X-Men series when it's so fucking confusing. That's my take that this is... Yeah. A, a well done I mean, comic I, that's a bad comic right i think i mean i think this one definitely left me with the most questions and now we're what at the end of this we're what 18 issues in mm-hmm. um you would think this is where it's really starting to click for me uh but but i still like i'm still left wanting more you know i want to continue with it because i think some of the characters are really cool and the art alone makes me want to continue with it um i think there's also a little bit of a darkness to it that i wouldn't necessarily expect from a flagship marvel franchise Mm -hmm. um but i mean there's definitely questions i have who the the girl that turns into the jacked up michelin man (laughs) like who what's her name uh, her name's Haseko or Hasako. I have no idea how to pronounce okay. it. I don't want to be and, disrespectful. Um, but she is like a new character that was created in this series. And that's like Joss Whedon adding to like the X-Men mythos and, and John Cassidy as well. And so she actually gets taken into space uh, with everyone. So she's actually a pretty big part of the next arc as well. Okay. Because I was going to say, she's pretty badass. I, I like her. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if she had any stay going forward there uh Um, she she does things get really complicated so like in the beginning of this arc they talk about like oh there's just like not as many students as there used to be and this book did a really good job of like trying to 
like the way it's a flagship title, it's a flagship title because it doesn't tie into like a lot of other books. Like this book is pretty independent. And so there were two things going on at this time. There was this story, which was happening. And like in the last arc, like, I don't know if you remember, but like the danger room, like convinced the student to kill himself and then use that yeah, to like yeah, break, yeah. break its restraints. And all these kids were like terrified by this room that the X-Men told them was like a safe place to be. And so like, when I first read the story, I like didn't even realize it, but like, I thought they were saying that like all these kids left because of the shit that happened in the last arc. But like, this ties in like timeline wise, exactly to house of M, which is an event that we're going to talk about soon on, on this show. But basically it ends with every mutant in the world being depowered, except for like 200 basically, where they just make it, so much more rare to be a mutant in the world. And so like that was that they acknowledged house of M with a sentence that never even mentions house of M. And so that's why I think this was meant to like, maybe flagship is like the wrong word, but it's supposed to be like the mainstream answer for people who were curious about comics, but didn't want to get bogged down in continuity. And yeah, so I'm it's, not sure the it's weird. Issues, you know. It's weird that like this is that book, and they're like, "Oh, let me talk really fucking heavily both about a book that came out six years ago, and also a book that came out at this point twenty six years ago." Like it's just so fucking bizarre. It's such right. a miss to me. It's really well done. Like it's if you know the shit that's happening, this is like essential reading. But man, it's just like for a new reader, like what the fuck were they thinking, man? Well, that's why everybody has to tune into Shortbox Summer. That's, that's why. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm getting really heated. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, well, I mean, if we have any excuse to get mad at Justin, we will take it, you know? So, yeah. But I think, um, I think this series, though, does a cool job of giving the Academy this kind of, the only thing, and great, we're talking about more works from shitty people, but the only thing that I can really related to is Hogwarts, right? Mm -hmm. um, and having it kind of being a character in and of itself. And there's parts of this, the past few issues that do that. I mean, certainly with the Danger Room, that definitely did that. That, And I think that's a really cool part of X-Men that kind of makes me want to keep going. And even if there's new characters that I may not be aware of, or if they introduce new mutants or things like that, if they're interacting there, I think that's a really cool setting. Um, and I think they do a good job of that. So that's something that that I that I find super interesting. That I think there's definitely a lot of characters with X-Men. Mm -hmm. So it's not as simple as you've got the one protagonist. Um, but if you stick with it, there's cool different personalities here. And me being a fan of trash TV and soap operas and my favorite show being the OC. I love the love triangles. I love the yeah. drama. So it's definitely up my alley. Yeah. And I do think that like the saving grace of this book is for sure. The art team. Like I think the, the trio of, of John Cassidy, of Laura Martin and Chris Iliopoulos on, on letters, like this is a beautiful book. It is not always like a succinct or clear book, right. but it is a beautiful, gorgeous sure. book. And it's just like the fight choreography is so well done where it's so clear what's happening visually that like, I think this story would make as much sense the first time you read it, if it didn't have words, like as bold as that might sound, if you're like as familiar with X-Men concepts as they were hoping you would be reading this, like, I think you could get it just from the visual storytelling 
Yeah. Like you, you think about that moment where like Logan like regains himself, right? Where it's just like a beer falling on him. And you were talking about like how like the the shifting focus of of those panels. And like that is right. just like, oh dude, they're like there were no words here. Like he didn't have to say what was happening. It was just so beautifully, clearly displayed that there didn't have to be you know it's just really impressive stuff from john cassidy understanding joss whedon's just batshit insane script on this arc in particular and translating it into something we could we could read and comprehend yeah and that that also happened too when beast was really being a beast i mean there was a visual change Mm -hmm. right in him that you could see the way they made him look when he was in that mode even just the the hairs and everything that they had on him was were different. They were more mangy. They were, you know, yeah. it was cool. That and just like the little details of like saliva, like in the corners of his right. mouth. And then like seeing him like come out completely refined, dressed like the fucking Monopoly man, you know, like when he right when he gets it all back together and just like the I don't want to say arrogance in his pose, but like the way his shoulders were positioned in particular as he strolled back into like the expansion as like, you know, the re-established hank mccoy it was just uh it's so good his, his john cassidy's body language is incredible and there's like one fight scene in the next arc that like when i think of wolverine that panel is like the first thing i think of it's just oh, like I such a cool that. weird shot that i'm just like fuck this is genius i wish i wish i had the ability to articulate visually the way you do it is just such an impressive skill but i mean there is really a way that they make some of these still images really come alive and it does almost give the illusion that it's that it's animated and i think that's really cool now can you clarify and it it might be my memory being foggy now that i'm turning into an old man here but the sword and their relationship here what is why are they overarching everything what's going on with that all right so this is going to be explained in like a later comic about like the three factions about how they've always been around forever. The sword, the shield and the hand, you know, like it's like, Oh yeah. The hand holds both of these things. That, that's all bullshit. Like at the time, like the, the, that comic wouldn't come out for like another five years. And John Hickman is just like, I, I personally think a fucking genius writer the way he just like weaves shit in. But like at the time it was just like them trying to think of a, a version of shield that could exist for space. And so sword first appeared, I believe like in this series in astonishing X-Men. And so they have been, they made contact with Ord of break world who reached out saying like, Hey, someone from your planet is going to destroy our planet someday. That's pretty fucked up. And so like, we want to create a, a serum that will cure mutants so that that doesn't happen. And considering that mutants are such like a hot political issue on earth, they were pretty open to the idea of there being a cure. So like, that's, that's where that came from. And so they're introduced just because they were in contact with break world, the the place that's supposed to be destroyed. Okay. And uh, I will, I will say the next arc, you get a lot more Abigail brand You get a lot more Haseko. She chooses a superhero name, a code name all this shit and there's one of my favorite moments in all of comics is in the next story arc oh oh yeah oh, i can't wait then i'm i'll tell you this uh, what disney plus is doing the revival of what, x-men 97 is that what it is yeah i mean this is getting me very excited for that very hyped um, for that i know yeah so i'm not the biggest animated guy but this is definitely got me looking forward to it 
I'm excited. I think that that show is like kind of what got me to comics like that and the Spider-Man and Batman all happening at once. Like that was the shit that like when I yeah. went to the grocery store and saw a Spider-Man comic, I was like, can I? Can I please have this? I remember when I was younger, that was a big deal for me. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, Sean, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Short Thank Box you for Summary. having me, as always. Um, look for Sean on future episodes. we got to wrap up Astonishing Excellent. Sean, your Twitter handle is Anella An- Ice? It is just my name. So, so it's just Sean Anella. Sean, yeah. S-E-A-N-I-N-E-L-L-A. Uh, or you can find me Shania Twain. And... Shania, Shania Twain on Twitter. Um, also, I, I try to talk to Sean quite a bit. So just check out the mentions uh, if you want to get in touch with Sean and follow him and all the cool shit he's doing. Sean, we're going to have you back soon. We're going to round out this. And um, I'm also going to talk to you about a special project soon. That's stuff we can do together for Shortbox. It's going to be really exciting. So I'm very excited. Until then, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And we will be back in your ear holes next week. Can't wait, guys. It's a great time to be a nerd. Keep tuning in. Nerds are eating.